If you would, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 34, Psalm 34, which can be found on page 547 of your pew Bible. That's page 547, Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is one of the richest psalms in the Psalter with many uh, memorable lines and lines that stick with us throughout our whole lives. We have already stayed together, verses 1 through 3, in a prior sermon. Today I want to look with you, though, at verses 1 through 10, which is uh, understood by, I think, everyone to be the first half of this psalm. Now, as you look at Psalm 34 on the page before you, uh, you should notice two things. One of them, unfortunately, is hidden in Hebrew, but the other one is very clear to us. First of all, in Hebrew, if you were looking at it in Hebrew, you'd see this. uh, Psalm 34 is an acrostic, an acrostic. That means that each line begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 begins with Aleph, the letter A in Hebrew, if you will. And then the next verse, verse 2, begins with Beth or Beth, uh, the letter B, and so on. Now, why does that matter? Well, it signals something to us. It signals to us that this psalm is going to have a strong wisdom message, a wisdom message, a, a wisdom feel. The alphabet... The human alphabet, all of our alphabets, are a way of organizing information wisely. So alphabets show off the depth and the orderliness of creation, and that's very much a wisdom theme. So it has a strong wisdom element. The great Puritan theologian John Owen chose a verse from this psalm to be the heading for his catechisms when he wrote his catechisms because he understood this strong wisdom a feel that this uh, psalm has. So acrostics like this are meant to uh, highlight to us the importance of wisdom. In Psalm 34, then, David is definitely rejoicing in God's salvation and deliverance. These are indeed some really powerful expressions of God's salvation. However, as he does his rejoicing, as he does his praising, he intends to teach us to teach us, to instruct us, and to invite us into wisdom, to see the world wisely, to see our lives wisely, to see them through a particular lens. Yes, he wants us to worship and praise God, but he also wants us to understand, to learn, and to perceive. There is joy to be had in this psalm, but there is also insight and skill for living. So that's the first thing you should kind of see as you look at the psalm. The second is the introduction and the way it gives us some helpful background to the whole of the psalm. You'll see the introduction at the heading of your psalm there in your scriptures. It reads, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Abimelech here is Achish that you heard about just a few minutes ago. Uh, when Elder Sparlin read 1 Samuel. It's Achish. Abimelech was sort of the throne name, and Achish was his personal name. And so this introduction allows us to place this particular psalm 
into the life of David. In fact, into one of the most precarious moments of his life. In context, David has slain Goliath and become a popular military leader in Israel. Something of really a folk hero where the people actually even sing about him slaying his ten thousands. Now secretly, before this, the prophet Samuel has already anointed him to be the next king. But the current king, King Saul, is full of jealousy and rage. He keeps David around him as a musician, but he has no love for him. On the other hand, though, ironically, Saul has a son named Jonathan, his heir, who loves David and covenants to protect him and is actually at peace with the reality that he will not rule, but rather David, his friend, will rule. And so when Saul decides to assassinate David, as kings often do, it is Jonathan who warns David, and David flees with nothing but the clothes on his back. His situation is so desperate that he is forced ultimately to flee to Abimelech, to Achish, to a Philistine, to Israel's enemies. What makes this scene in 1 Samuel even more dramatic is David's retrieval, maybe you noticed that when Elder Sparlin read it, the retrieval of Goliath's sword before he goes to Abimelech. So David is going to Goliath's hometown, to Goliath's people for refuge, bearing the sword of Goliath with which he beheaded their champion. Now this is the ultimate example of being between a rock and a hard place, isn't it? Saul and Abimelech have good reasons to want him dead. In this, we are very much reminded, I think there is here a shadow, a picture of our Lord Jesus, who had by the end of his life was hated so thoroughly by Jews and Gentiles and did not escape that hatred. And yet in all this, David is spared by God and he's ultimately able to escape into the wilderness where he gathers men to himself. He lives in caves And in the light of this stunning deliverance, probably in one of those caves, David writes this psalm. His life is not easy, it's not safe, but he's no longer alone. Friends and family and allies now support him. And so he rejoices. He rejoices at how God saved him in the most desperate moment of his life. And he writes this psalm. And this is what we're studying this morning. So please stand. We'll read verses 1 through 10 of Psalm 34. David writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I will bless the Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. 
The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we do look to you and to you alone for the blessing that we need to study your word. We come to you as poor men and women and look to you for salvation. Even the lions, even the rich and strong go without. And yet you have promised that your people will always be provided for. And so we look to you now. Open the word to us and feed us and strengthen us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Fear is terrible, isn't it? Fear is terrible. It's awful to feel afraid. And yet there doesn't seem to be any way around it, really, if you think about it. Fear dominates the human race, dominates our race. No matter how big you are or how strong you are, how rich you are, fear will find you out. If we were to sit together today and reflect on fear, I'm confident we would all discover numerous areas in which our lives are all but dominated by fear. We're afraid for our kids. We're afraid for our own bodies, that we might be ill. We're afraid for our world. We're afraid for our nation, our state, our finances, our church, our unsafe family and friends. Fear and anxiety are pervasive and extensive. Nothing is left untouched. In fact, the more you love someone or something in this life, the more you will wrestle with fear. Ironically, uh, you need more stuff, right? You need more stuff to be secure from some dangers, and yet having more always means having more to lose. It's a winless situation. Before I had children, I had fears, for sure, but now I know the true power of fear as a parent. The moment you hold that little one, a thousand anxieties come sweeping over you. Will they be okay? Will they follow God? Will they survive infancy? Who will they marry? What will the world be like for them? Well, Psalm 34 is about fear. It was written at a time when David was almost overcome with fear, at a time when most of us would have been overcome with fear as well. His whole life was in jeopardy. His marriage in ruin, Saul had taken his bride. He's on the run for his life, and he's going into the camp of his most hated enemies. Coming out of that experience, he wrote this psalm under the Spirit's guidance. But the psalm is more than just praise or thanks to God for deliverance. Of course, it is that. David is thankful to be alive and to be free. But Psalm 34, as we noted in the beginning, is not just praise. It's also instruction. It is meant to teach us how to deal with paralyzing fears. Coming from a man who faced fears, few of us will ever know. The psalm is wise. It is a tested psalm from a tested man. But here's where it gets a little strange for us, maybe. David's advice on fear is not what we might expect. We might expect David to encourage us to meditation or breathing techniques or to visit one's doctor. Now, all those things, uh, by the way, all those things can be appropriate and appropriately used and can be even necessary in certain situations. And I'm not opposed to any of those approaches. 
However, none of those things, very legitimate though they are, can substitute for the therapy that David here offers in the psalm. David uses the psalm to say that the key to combating fear is actually more fear, or rather, the right kind of fear, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord here, of course, doesn't mean terror. God's not unstable or vicious. Rather, the fear of the Lord here means a deep, abiding reverence for God and his promises. In modern terminology, we might say that when fear is big, we need a bigger view of God. This was the inspiration behind probably the best book ever written on fear, in our time anyway, Professor Ed Welch's When People Are Big and God is Small, wonderful book, along with his follow-up book, Running Scared. Dr. Welch delved deeply into fear, far more so than I think any modern Christian author has done. His basic insight was this, fear, fear means to be in awe of something, To be afraid, to be in fear, is to be in awe of something. And so we will either live in awe of God or in fear of others. And the way out of that fear is to live in awe and wonder of God. You don't escape fear by closing your eyes, but by opening them in awe to God. And that is very much what this psalm does. To study Psalm 34 today, we want to focus on the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 10. Charles Spurgeon called this the hymn section of the psalm, verses 1 through 10, the hymn. And then he called verses 11 through 22, the sermon. And I think that way of dividing it can be helpful. If you're using the Pew Bible, or maybe in your Bible, you can see that verses 1 through 10 are broken down into three stanzas. There's little breaks between them. You have verses 1 through 3 are kind of in a little group, verses 4 through 7, and verses 8 through 10. Let's look at each of these three stanzas together and how they teach us on how we ought to deal with fear. So first of all, in verses 1 through 3, we hear an invitation, an invitation to permanent praise. We've looked at these verses before, so we won't stay here long. However, let's briefly take in these verses one more time. Look at what David writes. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall never leave my mouth, literally, or shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David begins the psalm by committing himself to a life of continual, unceasing praise. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise will never stop in my mouth. This in itself is a powerful remedy against fear. Worship thrives on being in awe of God rather than in awe of our circumstances. David has experienced a deliverance that has placed praise permanently in his life. And as we noted last time, what God has done for David 
He has also done for all those in David, all the people, all the humble who will hear and rejoice. This doesn't mean, of course, that David or the people never cry out in pain or legitimate fear. We have lots of psalms that do that quite eloquently and at times quite desperately. But it does mean, it does mean that these cries of fear and pain that we have can never entirely silence the deeper note of praise in our life. If you've had the privilege of watching a believer, a strong believer in Christ, die or go through a terminal illness, a terrible diagnosis, uh, you've seen this reality up front. Tears can be abundant. They may go through times of questioning and despair. And yet it's amazing how to the very end, there's an undying note of praise on their lips, permanently placed there because of what Christ has done for them. Of course, David doesn't view this salvation he's experienced as purely personal. It is personal, but it's more than that. David knows that what God has done personally for him is good news for the humble in Israel, which is just another way of saying that all true believers in the nation will rejoice with him and take comfort from what has happened to him. And don't you see that's exactly what we're doing this morning, isn't it? Right now, Thousands of years later, we are rejoicing in the salvation David received from God. Because as Christians, we are the humble, the needy, and the lost who hear that God saves the weak, and we've rejoiced to hear it. But why should something that happened thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, to a Jewish king mean so much to us today? Why does David anticipate a corporate reaction to his deliverance? To understand that, and I think to understand these first three verses, you need to take one big step away from our American individualism. American individualism isn't all wrong. There's some good things in it, but there's some big problems. The Bible does see people as individuals, yes, We must all individually stand before the throne of God one day and give account for what we have done in this life. But the Bible has a second lens through which it sees people. It sees people covenantally. It sees us in our relationships with people. And in the Bible, these two lenses are equal. They're not at odds. God sees us as individuals, but he also just as fully sees us covenantally in relationship with each other. And so David, David gets this, and so David knows that what God has done for the anointed one, for him, as Israel's true king, as Israel's representative, God is doing for all the people. Now, at first glance, especially as Americans, this kind of biblical thinking might seem unfair or even dangerous. How is it, we ask, how is it that God can hold me guilty for a sin committed by Adam some 7,000 years ago. And yet the Bible says he does. And more importantly, it's that same way of thinking or working, that covenant bond between us as humans that allows God to do something far greater, to give to you and to me as Christians the full eternal reward of the second Adam. You see, if it's not fair to impute Adam's sin to you, then it isn't fair 
to give you the eternal glorious reward of a faithful son. So what at first seems dangerous, disastrous, and unfair that is linking us to a representative turns out to be the very vehicle God intended to bring untold blessings into our lives for all eternity. This is, if you've read it, the deep magic in Lewis's Narnia stories, the interlocking relationships that open the door both to the fall through Adam and to glory through Christ. So we have even more reason than David to look and to consider what God has done for our king, our Messiah, our anointed, our shield, and to rejoice permanently, to always have praise in our mouth because of what has been done for our king, for Christ. He went down all the way to grave and death, and yet the Lord his God, his Father, delivered him, and that deliverance is yours and mine if we are Christians. What God has done for the king, he has done for us all. Whatever happens to me or my family or my nation, the victory of my king cannot be undone. To be a Christian is to enter into a state of permanent praise and long to hear others exalt his name. And nothing and nothing breaks the power of fear in our lives like permanent praise in God's faithfulness to our king. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Looking directly at what God has done for us in Christ, we can add this certainty that he who gave his only son for us, will he not with him give us all things? And that all things is not just a new job or a new house. That all things includes the entire universe, immortal life, and a new heavens and new earth. All this is ours in the king, and so his praise can never fully be out of our mouth. So in the war against fear, there is nothing better than to enter into praise for what the Father has done for the Son and through the Son for us. This doesn't make every difficulty magically vanish, but it grounds us in praise and keeps us in awe of God so that our fears don't get awe over us. In the second stanza now, secondly, in verses 4 through 7, David adds weight to this invitation to worship by offering up his own testimony of God's deliverance. When we rehearse these words, And remember what God has done for us throughout our lives, we also find courage against fear. To do this rehearsal and make these applications, David employs a very particular alternating style in verses 4 through 7. There's a a sort of rhythm here in his testimony. In verses 4 and 6, the even-numbered verses, David speaks of what God has done for him. It's very personal. It's very intimate. But then in verses 5 and 7, he pauses and he applies that to all people, to everyone. He says, this is just who God is. This is how he acts. He sees again, he sees his experience as, yes, unique in a sense, but really as a pattern for what God does in the world. So the even verses, verses 4 and 6, speak very personally. Look at those verses. Verse 4, I sought the Lord. 
And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. It's a testimony of every Christian. And again, uh, this very much is my testimony, this verse. Uh, if you ask me what is the one verse in all the Bible that is sort of your verse for your salvation, it's verse 6 that my mom taught me. And here it is. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. When we reflect on this episode of David's life, this way of speaking is so appropriate. He was a man at the end of himself. He was reduced. Imagine this. You're a brave warrior who has beheaded a giant in battle, in single combat. But he was reduced to drooling and pretending to be mad. He was in an utterly desperate condition. Utterly desperate. But God heard him and delivered him from all his fears and all his troubles. Maybe we can also learn something from this testimony. David sought the Lord as a poor man, even though many people saw him as an accomplished warrior. He came to God in genuine humility and helplessness. Woven in, though, with these wonderful personal words, words that I hope you'll take to heart and use for your own testimony, woven into these personal words, words though, are words of rich theology for the community. We have sweeping, wonderful statements here about God. The first one is in verse 5. Those who look to God are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The face is, of course, uh, the most expressive part of you. Some of us are terrible at hiding our emotions. They're readable on our face, right? To have God's face shine upon you, as in the Levitical benediction that I give each week, means that you have God's smile, his blessing, his presence. He cannot help but look at you because of Christ and smile at you. And those who look to God's for deliverance and to God alone for deliverance will be radiant. That shining face will cause their face to shine, even as Moses' face shone after he was in the presence of God. They will find joy. They will find God's smile coming back to them, looking back at them. Not only that, but they will ultimately, David says, they will ultimately not be ashamed. Whatever else happens, they will not die in shame. The Bible gives us numerous examples of this, but probably none is more powerful than the example of Christ, who fulfills this verse. Jesus died in the most shameful way possible. The cross was so scandalous and shameful that we know from history that Romans and Jews would not even mention the word crucifixion in polite society. It was considered a sort of profanity to even speak of it because the way it happened and the way it was done was so horrifically shameful and disgusting. And yet in his crucifixion, Jesus looked to the Father. He suffered and he died innocently. He commended himself to God. And now, now, the cross itself has been transformed into the ultimate symbol of love and mercy. Long after crucifixion was done away with as barbaric and evil, the cross is still with us everywhere, isn't it? Usually it's in gold and silver. 
Can we guess, maybe guess this morning, that there are at least a million, probably tens of millions of crosses in our world this morning, and some of them adorn the most beautiful buildings ever built. So what has happened? In Jesus, this verse has been fulfilled. Those who look to God will never be ashamed. The death of the cross was meant, it was designed by the Romans to inflict maximum shame. You were naked and you were pulling yourself up to breathe and you were urinating on yourself and everyone walked by and watched you gasping and struggling. And the whole purpose, the reason the Romans did this is so that no one would ever like that person or follow that person or think highly of that person again. That was the shame of it. And yet Jesus looked to his father and God has reversed it. And now his, his honor is so great that even his cross is radiant because he looked to his father. Verse 7 adds another wonderful application full of meaning. Look at that verse. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. One of the things I've tried to emphasize in our study on the Psalms is that the Psalms were not done in a vacuum. David wrote the Psalms while he was reading his Bible. His Bible was Torah the first five books of your Old Testament. David knew that by heart, and he wrote out of the Torah. And that's where you find this character, the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is the star character in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. David knew this. This is what he's talking about. The angel of the Lord was sort of the full presence of God in your life when the angel of the Lord appeared. And so David is thinking about those texts and saying, whenever a poor person, a poor believer looks to God for help, the angel of the Lord is present there camping around them. Maybe he's thinking here, especially I think of Jacob's life. The most desperate moment of Jacob's life, he's going to meet his twin brother. He expects, he fully expects to be killed. He's on his way and God opens his eyes And Jacob sees that beside his camp, there is a second camp of angels, that he is being guarded in everything that happens to him by God's angels. And so Jacob calls that place Mahanim, meaning two camps, my camp and the angelic camp. Or maybe David has in mind the angel of the Lord that stood watch over Israel, camping with them in the wilderness and guarding her against the Egyptians. Whichever text he has in mind, it could be one of many. David means to say that God is present with his people in distress. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, God is so closely associated with the angel of the Lord that some would insist, many would insist, that the angel of the Lord is Jesus himself before his incarnation. The angel is called the angel of God's presence and seems totally distinct from the rest. Now, whether or not the angel of the Lord is Jesus in the Old Testament, the presence of Christ is real throughout the Old Testament. Maybe the most thrilling example of what David says here, at least for me, is the man walking around in the furnace with the three Jewish friends. It was the wonderful practice of the Puritan uh, pastor, Samuel Rutherford, who's had such a huge impact on my life, 
But when Samuel Rutherford would write friends, especially friends and parishioners who were suffering, deeply suffering, he would often invoke to them the story of the fiery furnace, and he would promise faithful sufferers that if they would but look by faith, they would see that in all their suffering, there was another in the furnace with them, one like unto the Son of Man. The angel of the Lord is near, and like Elisha's servants, their eyes were opened to see that there are more with us than with our enemies. The angels of God are not idle in New Testament times. They ministered to Jesus at key moments in his life. They ministered to the apostles. They are present in our worship services, including right now, and they are present in our lives. But of far more importance, David says, is the angel of the Lord who is on our side and by our side. David's testimony then is rehearsed in order to cause us, the congregation, to believe that once again what is true for the fathers was true for David, was true for the king, and is true for us. That God is with his people in their distress. That's his testimony in verses 4 through 7. So in the first stanza, 1 through 3, David invites us to permanent praise in light of what God has done for the anointed one. Second, David rehearses his salvation in 4 through 7 so that we can see the way God continues to save his people, even down to this very moment. He assures us that God's shining face of benediction and God's angel, the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately is still available and present with God's people. These great realities of Genesis and Exodus are still active in David's life and the life of all the humble. Lastly, in verses 8 through 10, the third stanza, David pleads with Israel and with us to discover these things for yourself. To discover these things for yourself, not just to read about them, but to actually experience this in your life. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Here again, I think David is thinking about the Old Testament, his Bible. And I think he's invoking here the presence and the thoughts of the wilderness generation, especially the wilderness manna. If you recall the manna, which just in Hebrew means what is it, or we don't know, the manna was used by God as a way to sustain the people right in the wilderness. It was like bread. And through the manna, God taught Israel to trust him, to actually taste and see, to really know, to really believe that God was going to provide for them. And the way he did this was God made the manna so that it went bad very quickly, within about 12 hours. And so you couldn't stockpile it. And God actually forbade Israel for storing it up. Why? So that every morning they woke up and said, your mercies are new every day. Every morning they got up and said, if it comes, we live. If it doesn't come, we die. We have to rely entirely in God. Every single day, we have to learn, taste and see, taste and see, taste and see that the Lord is good, that the Lord is good. 
And that's how he wants us to live. It's how he wants you to live. He doesn't want you just to read about these things. He wants you to trust him entirely, fully, completely, daily, moment by moment, to wake up every morning like the wilderness generation and taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Second part of verse 5 could be a whole sermon as well of its own. David adds, blessed then, because of this, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's how the psalm begins, right? The whole book of Psalms, Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of evil, but trusts in the Lord. Life is hard and scary. David is well aware that all people, all people seek refuge. I don't care who you are, what your religious background, all people need a refuge. We all want it. We're all looking for it. And most people in David's day, just like today, seek their refuge in something of this world. For him, it was idols. They had little household idols. Or maybe they filled their barns and said, I've got plenty of food, so I'll be okay. Or maybe it was their physical strength or their talents or their ability or their family or their clan or their tribe. People seek refuge. They seek safety because life is unsafe. Here, David offers a blessing. The only blessing life gives that life will really give you, the only one God offers, and it's only to those who take refuge in him. As you probably know, this was Israel's greatest struggle and the cause of almost all of their sin was an unwillingness to take real refuge in God alone. This blessed condition, this beatitude is the word from the New Testament. It is a beatitude. This beatitude is finally then described in verses 9 through 10 as having no lack, no lack. The key, David says, is to fear the Lord, to be in awe of him. And next time, Lord willing, we'll see what David has to say about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of all wisdom. But for now, just notice that God is the only provider who will not fail you. Even the young lions at times go without. Lions in that culture, remember, lions are the apex predator in that region. And young lions are the strongest and most active of all the animals. And yet David says, even they at times lack. Even they starve to death sometimes. But those who fear the Lord will not lack any good thing or all good things. Now here's the point of this third stanza. David does not want us simply to sing along, but rather to experience what he has experienced. And we can only do that when in faith we commit ourselves or our situation entirely to God unreservedly. For us, this tends to happen only when we're in incredible desperate conditions. And if you are a mature Christian with some years under your belt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is the most desperate situations, the situations in which we are powerless, that we find ourselves finally, really, fully relying on God and finding him to be good. Because it's in those most desperate times, it's in the worst times of your life that you must taste and see that he is good. Of course, God's goodness is there to be tasted and seen all the time. But it's in weakness and desperation that the poor really open wide the doors of their hearts and mouth and know this psalm. Now let's step back for a moment. 
We've seen the invitation to permanent praise, a chance to join in thanking God for what he has done for our king. We've seen the rehearsal of the praise, the testimony of David joined with the wonderful applications for all God's people. And lastly, we've heard a plea to fully join in only as we give ourselves to God, trusting in him alone. Put these three stanzas together, these first 10 verses, and I think you get one united message, but for two kinds of people in this room. First of all, for those of you who know Jesus, who are his disciples, this psalm reminds us of how we became Christians. David speaks here of the poor man who cried. He's a man without strength. He's a man without options. As Christians, when we reflect and meditate on these 10 verses, we are inevitably drawn back to our salvation. I think this is part of what makes Psalm 34 so special and so memorable for us. It becomes our own testimony of God's grace to us. But the psalm, for this very reason, is also a challenge to us as believers to remember that to taste and to look at God's great acts of salvation in our lives is to never forget a lesson. Did you not at one time taste and see as never before the goodness of the Lord for the poor, humble, and hopeless? If so, then why are you now living your life in your own strength? The great lesson of your salvation and mine is that it was all of God from beginning to end. That is the taste we had in our mouths at the beginning. Sadly, though, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can lose that taste. And Psalm 34 is here to renew it, to renew it and strengthen that hunger and thirst for God's saving grace. On the other hand, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, not a disciple, this psalm is an amazing invitation to you. Come and see, taste and see. Come and buy with no money at no cost, no cost at all. Jesus, you see, did not come to be just another religious figure or a philosopher. He actually offers not just his teaching to you, he offers himself to you. Do you see the difference? All the other religious leaders in the world, Buddha, Muhammad, they all came to earth and said, here's what I think and follow my example. And Jesus, of course, does call us to follow his example, but he didn't just offer us advice or teaching. He offered himself. He said, come, eat, drink, and live. And in fact, if you don't come and you won't come and eat, you can have no part in him. Here's how he put it in John 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Sooner or later, life will not satisfy you. It's coming. Even the young lions in our society, the rich and the famous, even the young lions, especially the young lions, go hungry. But Jesus offers himself to you without price. And he is the only meal that grows sweeter and better with every passing year. So come, eat, drink, and live. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in what you have done for your son. 
in raising him from the dead and placing him above all things. His cross is radiant. He is radiant. He is the angel of the Lord with us in every difficulty. And so we look to him and through him to you for every good thing. Give to your people this day strength against fear that they might rejoice in their salvation. They might rehearse the goodness of God to the Son and that they might in all things look to you and know your salvation. May we taste and see that you are good. And for those who do not know you, have not come to follow Christ. Father, this day show them that all the world has to offer can never fill them. It just can never, never, ever be enough. Help them to fall out of love with the world, that they might come and drink of Christ and find satisfaction. They might taste and see. Do this, we pray, Father, that your son would be glorified on earth. And we ask it in his name. Amen.